0: If grandma and grandpa could survive that, surely what you're going through is not so bad. And that was when a boy didn't like me back. <laughs> that was when I got a bad test grade. That was also more specifically, a few years ago I was very ill and I had to go through really hard treatment. My mother would say, well, it's not the Holocaust. And I said, yeah, it's not even close.
1: From Mind Body Space, it's Rx Chill Pill, a show about science-backed resilience skills and powerful stress management tools to make you the boss of your own brain. I'm your host, Dr. Juna Bobby, a physician specializing in mind-body medicine, and a mom of two amazing kids. There are three different kinds of episodes. One where I interview fascinating people and experts who share resilience tips for the mind-body in space. Another where you'll find short meditations you can do anywhere, anytime to get your daily dose of the relaxation response, the complete opposite of the stress response. In the third type, you'll get science-backed resilience boosters and antidotes to stress that really work so you can tap into your own brain's superpowers and apply it liberally in your daily life. Today's guest, Elise Garibaldi, is here to tell us how she draws courage and resilience from her grandparents' story of love and faith in human compassion against all odds. Elise is an Amazon bestselling author, playwright, songwriter, and a stay-at-home mom to two amazing teen boys. Her very first book, Roses in a Forbidden Garden, A Holocaust Love Story, is an Amazon bestseller, and it's ranked number seven on the best love story in books list by ReviewTap.com. The book is recommended reading by the Holocaust and Human Rights Education Center, and there's even a guide for teachers using it to spark discussion around the Holocaust, heroism, and hope. At the end of this episode, you'll find all the resources and updates on Elise's amazing journey. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I love your hair color. (laughs) It looks like Elise has her... Hair, ombre, from the middle all the way to the tips in pink. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love it. You have a really cool, funky style.
0: Yeah. I definitely always like to revisit pink hair. I wanted it (laughs) since I was a child and I was never allowed to have it. So now, as an adult, I've gone crazy with the pink. And uh, as a mom of two teenage boys that are wrestlers and that are always talking about protein shakes and lifting weights and benching. I gotta feel like a girl, you know, so pink hair definitely taps into the feminine energy you know, side of myself, for sure. My boys are used to me when I walk down the stairs and the, with a the new hair color, or whatever, they don't even respond or acknowledge it. At this point, they're like, so what's for dinner? You know, I'm like, really?
1: <laughs> Elise spent almost every weekend with her grandparents in Brooklyn from when she was a baby until around 11 years of age. Her grandparents really didn't talk directly about the Holocaust to her. She remembers some of the peculiar day to day perspectives that made an impression on her, even as a young child. She also heard bits and pieces of the love story between her grandparents. She knew in her heart that these stories needed to be preserved and shared with the world.
0: Yeah, so it's about my grandmother um, and her time as a teenager during World War II. Uh, She was German, well, is German. Mostly uh, about how she fell in love with uh, my grandfather. I'd always hear about these daring acts of love um, that they would express their, their feelings towards one another, and they were just so beautiful. And they became my, my belief that that was how love exists in the world. So she really shaped my view on the
1: world and, and love's importance. It's the typical weekend, you're hanging out at her house. What was that like?
0: Yeah, she was really, really sweet. She would cook me traditional German dishes. Um, she wanted to form my Jewish identity. They were very observant. And so we would have Shabbat on Friday nights with you know, the challah and the chicken soup. And Saturday mornings we would go to synagogue together. And then we just spend the rest of the day until Sunday night just playing with my Barbie dolls and watching Wheel of Fortune and playing UNO card games. I mean, it was just, you know, she would take me to the park down the street. You know, she was just fun. Yeah. She would tell me the stories about when, you know, they would meet, but then I would also hear the stories of, let's say I wouldn't finish all the food on my plate. They said, you can't do that. We were starving. We wished we had too much food, you know, and they get really angry at me when I wouldn't finish all the food on my plate, and I understood, of course. So I would hear about the war, it was a constant. So therefore I was always very well aware of risks involved with being Jewish. That was at times overwhelming as a child, because you didn't really know how to handle it. And it was almost, I could feel their trauma. and. Um, That that wasn't their intention. They just wanted me to be aware. Like they said, always have your passport, you know, in case you have to run away because that was their reality, so they were just trying to raise me with a certain awareness of the world Um, and it worked. Ironically enough, I always ran away from Um, the imagery of the Holocaust or from the history, and we were taught in seventh grade about it. And for me, it was a reality and it was a possibility of happening again. Uh, With the exception of keeping our passports, you know, um, renewed. (laughs) and That was pretty much all we ever spoke about in terms of the Holocaust. Of all things that I then wrote this book and I've spent the last few years of my life Spending in Germany and giving lectures to school children and speaking to Parliament about it, it's really uh, very ironic. And you just never know where life takes you.
1: Anything else that you remember that allowed you to learn about what they had been through, the kind of trauma that happened? or I was young, so
0: I had a very um, small glimpse, and I think probably more of an age-appropriate glimpse. Like when I saw relatives and they had numbers on their arm, I'm like, what's that? So at first they say, oh, so I don't forget my phone number. And then um. as I got older, they said, no, they put it, uh, the numbers from the camp. So I was like, okay. You know, so it was a very mild form of, of presenting information to me. When you're growing up, yeah. how does this affect you? So I didn't feel I was alone at any point. But that being said, during the high holidays at synagogue, we were always very well aware that a police presence, an armed police presence was needed. Also, there was always numerous bomb threats at the synagogue growing up. That was not unusual. I remember even um, the first boy I liked, I kissed. (laughs) He was a cute (laughs) Italian boy from the Bronx. We really liked each other. Somehow it came up a conversation that I was Jewish and he's like, what? Are Jewish? <laughs> Does that matter? He was done. We had a shared group of friends, and every time he was around me, he would make very inappropriate Jewish jokes. Oh, yeah. I really did like him, and, and it was sad, and he really liked me, which was weird. And I even found out many years later, maybe about 20 years later, that he actually we happened to know someone in common, and he said, hey, can you take a picture? She's still so pretty and so nice. And that just kind of broke my heart. Why is everything important than humanity and love? Like why is something like religion held to greater importance than that. that? That just blows my mind. It's not how what his heart felt. Wow. That, so yeah, it was hurtful though for sure. And and I met my husband at 16, so shortly after, about a year or two after I met my husband, he's Italian Catholic. And <laughs> when he saw me. He knew I would be his wife, but it took him a year and a half to build up the courage. And oh, okay. We haven't been apart one day in 25 years.
1: Your parents, they tell you to date Jewish boys? or Oh, that was expected. They, it was expected, but you, sure. ju- you just said no. Was I, there a conflict about yeah, that? Yeah, that was,
0: there was a big... I mean, my mom is, is great, like, she disapproved. I never made sense to her, but no matter what, she loved me and supported me in everything, actually, it, without fail. So um, when I said, well, this is the guy, then she immediately embraced him. It was harder for my grandparents. They actually didn't show up to my wedding, which was really huge. Before my grandfather passed away, he said of his whole life, that was his one regret that he didn't uh, support me and go to my wedding. And I, I believe that.
1: Did you feel like, why am I always dating outside of my religion? Or was that just something natural to you? It sounds like you're very romantic. Person.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, I just really am extremely romantic, and I guess from those love stories uh, from my grandmother, I just always believed was looking for the love of my life. And so as soon as I found it, I said that's that's it.
1: And you were mentioning that you had heard a lot of love stories from your grandmother.
0: Yeah, so it was very beautiful because in their garden they always had marigolds. They're not particularly beautiful, and it was amongst their rose bushes and things like that. And they would always treasure it. And I would ask why the marigold? What's so special about this flower? When they were in the camps, it was her birthday. My grandfather, he had a friend who worked in the Nazi gardens. When he was tending the garden, he hid it, a single marigold in his watering can and brought it into the camp. On the celebration of her birthday, my grandfather not only takes out a marigold for her, and she hadn't seen one in years at that point, and he and his friend actually risked their lives to give her this flower. They could have been shot on sight for doing something like that. But she actually took it back to her her room and kept it there for a month. And that was so risky because it could be twice a week the guards would come and look for contraband. Those small acts and the hope that they would talk about when they get out of the camp, they would get married and start a family together. That was what allowed her to survive and stay spiritually and emotionally strong through that time. When my grandfather was to be transported out east, uh, they didn't know exactly what it meant, but they knew it was bad. The last evening before he was to be transported out, he jumped into a Nazi garden filled with pink rose bushes. He picked a rose. He said, this is the perfect rose for my perfect girl, put it in this envelope and dated it. And she still has those same rose petals he had given her almost 75 years ago. That was the inspiration for the title of my book, which is Roses in a Forbidden Garden, a Holocaust love story. Amazing. Um, So these were like amazing stories. That's why I believe in love and and, and at all costs. It's just, um, it shakes me. And she still has these petals? Yeah. I have a picture of it in my book and they're they're becoming famous, (laughs) you know, because it's so beautiful and so amazing. My grandfather was transported to Auschwitz and then after that to Dachau and uh even survived a small death march after that he he was uh liberated by the americans at he was 5 foot 10 weighed 78 pounds and he had typhus so it took him a good six months until he was strong enough to go and look for her
1: your favorite love story
0: i mean i loved wilbur smith's um books they were historical fiction about ancient egypt like the river god and books like that i loved also the red tent that was also really beautiful to me, Um, so a lot historical fiction with major themes of love. Mm -hmm. At that point were you working or were you a stay-at-home mom? Yeah, so you
1: decided to write this book.
0: My focus was definitely uh, raising my children. I was definitely a stay-at-home mom. I always pursued some sort of some form of artistic pursuits, but my my primary um, role was
1: raising my kids and, the beauty and how did you been writing all this time in your adult life, or was it something that just came to you one day and you decided, hey, there's a book here? How did that happen? Where did that spark come from?
0: So again, with that voice, uh, all of a sudden one day, oh, the I was voice, a boy. the voice. Is um, it a
1: woman's voice? I don't know. Or is it
0: just like a thought? It's, I think it's it's just an inner voice, or it's a connection to you know, who knows how the spiritual world works, but I felt it's like a spiritual. Calling. I was brushing my hair and oh. putting on my makeup, and all of a sudden, I had this voice say to me, you have to write her story. And I was like, no. I <laughs> no, I'm not, not out loud. I, to answer that, so I was like, no, I can't take on that responsibility. And says, oh. you have to write it, you have to write it. And I'm like, no, no, no. I never wanted to bear that responsibility of historic, the historic responsibility they were lost to history, so many of these people. So my way of telling the story would be, would bring them to life. And that was very frightening to me. I didn't know if I was up to that. So what I did is I immediately picked up the phone and called my grandmother. And I told her, I'm going to write your story. And I knew that once I told her that, that I was bound and I couldn't back out. And was she excited by that when you told her? Oh, no. She hated the idea, but no, she thought it was a horrible idea. But she loves me and supports me, and she said yes immediately.
1: Why did she think it was a horrible
0: idea? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's multiple reasons, but for the first being is she's a very private, uh, shy person. She doesn't like any attention. Um, And you
1: did mention that your family, for the most part, ran away from this history and didn't really want to revisit it on a daily basis is that right absolutely especially her my grandfather was
0: much more vocal of the two of them my grandmother she never really spoke about anything she was 89 at this point they were concerned if this would maybe adversely affect her health you know talking of the past i was very conscious of that the interviews were like an hour and a half over coffee and cake and in my mother's kitchen and we only took it as far as she wanted to go. And that's why the injury, it took a year and a half, because we had to be, I didn't really honor the process that she never mourned these people or spoke about these people that she had lost 70 years ago at that point. My first question to her was, when did the war become real to you? And when was the first moment? And do you mind sharing that with us? She had already been kicked out of school. She had already been forced to sit way back in the class. She had been forced to endure lectures by the principal on the biology of a Jew, on the history of a Jew. she said, for her, that really shaped her uh, identity, meaning she always carried with her an inferiority complex, because those were literally her her class lessons were on the inferiority of Jews. She wasn't permitted to continue her education after the age of 13, which also enhanced her feelings of inferiority because she always respected learned people and doctors. So she was always very ashamed that she didn't have a formal education. But for her, what she said first time she felt the war was real to her, was the night of Kristallnacht, which was November 9th, 1938, when the SA came to their homes and destroyed their homes and took her father away
1: as a a criminal. Wow. Yeah, that was when she first felt it. How did you feel uh, learning all these firsthand stories? Did it change your perspective on the world? How does that shape you as a mom?
0: It was actually interesting. I didn't expect... A lot of the stories that she told me, it actually gave me a lot of hope, which was really interesting. They were forced to wear the Jewish stars over their left breast um, jacket. How was it when you'd walk down the street? Did they heckle you? Did they, did they throw things at you? Did you feel, now that you were wearing a, tar- a literal target, did you feel um, harassed? Or did the violence increase? What happened? And, and she said something so interesting that blew my mind. She says, absolutely not. No, everyone knew who the Jews were in town already, and just the opposite. Everyone would look at me with sympathy, and I felt that they felt so sorry for me. And many of the non-Jewish shopkeepers, because Jews were already restricted with certain food, would secretly put it out when she knew they knew she'd be walking by to you know, and and there were all these small acts of kindness from the townspeople. And this is in Germany, and she was very clear. She said, "Listen, I can't speak for every." Jewish person walking around with a star at this time. She said, this is just my experience. Hitler only got 30% of the votes of uh, of the election. That means that other 70% followed along, right? Which is bad, but they didn't believe in it. Um, They didn't support it. We can tell this story within those times of Germany's times if they still didn't believe in it. And they're like, no, but these are the neighbors that my my children would play in their front yard. So if there's so much humanity there, I was like, okay, we have a lot we can work with. And I actually got very optimistic and hopeful, which I didn't anticipate
1: in writing the story. What what did you anticipate in writing the story? What was your goal when you heard that voice? Was there any kind of vision of what this story was meant for?
0: I always say that uh, humanity shines brightest in the darkest of nights. Uh, that's sort of my slogan. It's in many of the songs that I wrote for the play I did on this. I wanted to show how beautiful these people were. They share, if they get one piece of bread, which would mean the difference of life and death, they would always share it with strangers. I saw them as inspirational and as like rock stars. I think history has shown them as victims and pitiful, and I just thought that there was a lack of of representation in that light, and that was my purpose in writing the story in the way I did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. It's not about Jews. It's about humanity. This happens to have happened to Jews, but this is in our country, happened to black people and and all, sort, and all Genocide is not exclusive to Jews in Germany. I mean, this is a problem. I was asked, what is your definition of success uh, with, with my work? And I said, when people stop looking at, oh, wow, look what happened to these Jews. I want them to say, oh, look what happened to these people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's my definition of success.
1: hmm
0: Yes. It's written in the style of a novel. I wanted this to be read by everyone, a larger audience. There's cliffhangers and, will they or won't they, and, and things like that. But no, everything is absolutely true. So the research, were you able to find documents? Well, with my grandmother's book, it was a lot of storytelling. My grandfather had already passed away, but he had written an account of of his life. So a lot of the information I get of his experiences are from his exact words. And he had one of these weird photographic memories. Well, she actually had the date and the envelope and the rose petals. So actually, (laughs) yeah, we do have documents Uh of everything, believe it or not. Uh There were a lot of files burned, of course, you know, at the end of the war. And did you reach out to these institutions to vet check? I've been working with my mother on this project. I'm very much an artist in the cliché sense of the word, and she's very detail-oriented and things like that, so she researched and got in touch with. We have a, a forward from the Leo Beck Institute by the chief um, researcher. and You had yeah. a partner. Yeah, yeah <laughs> my mom's my partner. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We all need a partner.
0: It definitely helps because it's hard to be good at everything.
1: What happened that switched on your creativity?
0: I actually had written a book before. It was a novel. It came to me in a dream, and I started writing. I couldn't get one literary agent to even return my um, calls or (laughs) my emails, and I was at a dead end, and I was like, was I a fool? Like, did I misunderstand that? What was that book about? A lot of the same subject matter in terms of Racism, discrimination, a lot sexism, it's it's being an outsider. It's also uh, heavily based in martial arts, something I've practiced for more than 20 years. So yeah, I met I, you in a
1: kung fu class. Right, <laughs> yeah, down in Chinatown.
0: Yeah. It was in a backdrop of martial arts, but it's this uh, girl's journey about rising above her limitations and finding her strength and her power in her own way, and which is really not unlike the story that of my grandmother who was told she was nothing and now she's becoming a star <laughs> and she's like uh you know we just had all these interviews and it's gone on the internet and everyone knows her and she's getting contacted all the time and and it's beautiful that she found her voice and her strength and she's inspiring movements and she's now 95 she looks
1: amazing i saw that she's video short, of her a healthy not on wood it sounds like she's gotten over the idea that Strangers are gonna hear about this book.
0: Oh, well, she had no choice. Yeah, it became uh, just shortly after its release It became an Amazon bestseller, so she got to come to Germany that pretty quickly. She feels very comfortable speaking to Americans mm-hmm. She is still Very fearful when the journalists are German.
1: Oh, and you have been traveling to Germany Yes, last. which
0: gets her very nervous because oh, we're she's not- been going with you no, I'm an emotional trip like that, she doesn't feel comfortable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, she's been back many times after the war. It's not that.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were telling me that they have been very um, open to your book in Germany, yes, and you actually have gotten a lot more press there. Yeah, you're writing.
0: Yeah, it was translated there uh, January of this year. It was released. I've really been embraced by members of the government, um, by teachers, by schools. They're actually trying to name the school my grandmother was forced to sit in the back row of and kicked out of. They're trying to name that very school after her, which is just beautiful. So Mm -hmm. so poetic. But then, you know, there's also opposition, which I expected a lot more of. I I was actually shocked at how beautifully we were received. Um, And again, it It ties in with those feelings of hope when I wrote it. Um, Some of them are the children of essay agents, believe it or not, and they're really trying to promote my work. They try to do better and they try to own, but I think they're not even aware of their anti-Semitism. It's just so basic and fundamental to them that they don't even realize it and they don't mean anything by it. And I see that through conversations and I can actually see when I was speaking to different journalists and different school children, I could see their minds changing right before me. Wow. Like one journalist actually said, oh, I understand you're trying to come across as normal. (gasps) And I'm like, Whoa, because I was making a totally different point.
1: And I said, oh, okay, hold on. Could said, that be maybe translation? No. <laughs> no, I have oh, okay. many stories it about It wasn't this. just like, you know, some German words or just No, he was very ashamed,
0: actually. <laughs> oh, afterwards. he was. And I okay. said, excuse me. I said, no, we are normal. We are people. I see. And then he his face got red. He's like, I'm so sorry. I see. He really liked me. And that's what I was like, wow. So this is really a lot of it is just a lack of exposure.
1: Mm-hmm. He wrote it's a beautiful easier.
0: article, article, and really supported it. <laughs> like it's terrifying my mother. She's like, "Oh my god!" But I'm like, "No, this Why did is it amazing." Her? Oh, that that people are still. Oh my god! And they're still abiding by the old Nazi propaganda. and yeah. yeah. I was like, "No!" I said, "That was amazing. That was so exciting." And they did a whole segment on me. This is being televised. I wonder how many other people, just through seeing this, will also react in the same way he did. It's very, very rewarding. And it's the opposite. I was always running away from it because it was so sad, the subject matter. And now I'm really running towards it because I see how much good it's putting out into the world. From my experience of being around survivors is that everybody experiences it through their character. For example, my grandmother, she still has such a faith in people and she has understanding and compassion. My grandfather, his experiences were a lot worse than hers. He had tremendous anger. You know, would wake up every night screaming and and with trauma.
1: Hard to believe that there could be a filter for that kind of experience, though. Like I said, my
0: grandmother still can't believe, like, when someone's mean to me, she's like, no. And I'm like, really, grandma? That shocked you? That's amazing. Yeah, she's really like that. Even though I was raised observant, I'm not at all. People ask me, well, then why put them in Hebrew school? Why have them bar mitzvah? And I said, for their Jewish identity because in my experiences, the world will always tell you that there's something wrong with you because you're a Jew. People are very vocal about Jewish people and it's usually in a negative light. And I wanted them to really understand who they were as Jewish people and have a very positive sense of their identity. So it was very important for me to expose them. And then as they get older, they can make their own choices in terms of who they marry, or if they're observant, but I was obligated to to show them the positivity and understanding of what it means
1: to be Jewish. Well, definitely those um, the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvahs. I I wish yeah. I was Jewish. <laughs> I mean, <that's laughs> such a wise and amazing thing to do. But they also have an Italian side, right? Yeah. So do they? A very from that? a very
0: strong family. <laughs> the famous Italian general that unified Italy is a relative of my my husband so they're very very Italian (laughs) (laughs)
1: wow so they have uh, they have history on both sides yeah so do they uh, get in touch with their Italian side as well oh my god especially with the cooking
0: (laughs) yes yes I don't know if you've seen my children but they are enormous wrestlers, muscular wrestlers like they're lean 220 I mean it's unbelievable and that's really because my husband is like all right you know I love you and all but you better learn how to cook Italian dishes (laughs) or else you know so
1: I was, I'm sorry, what went out The masa balls or the meatballs?
0: <laughs> so, yeah, well, they love both. For us, like, everyone was like, oh my God, one thing is to date an Italian or, like, outside of your religion. ethnicity and your religion, but another thing is to marry. What about the children? Blah, blah. I mean, listen, my husband and I have been together 25 years. We fought. But it was never about religion or ethnicity or anything. That was like the one thing we've never fought and I don't think we've even had a discussion. Like, I mean, uh-huh. it's like such a non-issue. Is it, it's
1: just like, who's taking out the garbage? Now? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> I always really admire and respect somebody that would actually marry into the Jewish faith, being that... You bear a huge responsibility because we are targeted throughout the world. I really
1: admire someone who would take that on voluntarily. That's interesting. Yeah. Did he understand that when he was dating you? Did he have other Jewish girlfriends? <laughs> <laughs> I was actually his first <laughs> girlfriend. Experience? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. You need to write a love story about you guys. <laughs> I think mean, that's uh, next. And did um, his family have any issue with you guys being Jewish or... No, nope, absolutely uh-huh. none. That's wonderful. Yeah. Okay. That was, that was like I said, it was a
0: total non-issue. We can either focus on the ugliness or the differences, or we can focus on and, and enjoy what people do in a beautiful way and integrate it. I think that's the best way to live life in general.
1: And how is all the sport you're doing affecting the boys? Oh,
0: They think I'm like the coolest thing in the world. It's like, so and I'm like, oh my God, they are teenage boys, and you think I'm the coolest thing that in the world?
1: so great. Yeah, yeah, they
0: they love it.
1: Do you care about who they're going to end up with? If they're Italian or Jewish or Black no. or Asian or...
0: I don't care about anything? really... My boys, I mean, in some ways they're similar to me, but in other ways they're just completely different people. Uh-huh. And I've always raise them to just be the best versions of themselves whatever works for you and even my grandmother she's like how do you do and how do you get along with your children so well you know like because we actually have like a great time together we really laugh and we enjoy it and my grandmother's like how what do you do do you never criticize them i'm like oh no i criticize them uh, like with love i feel that's a spiritual thing i think that's something divine and
1: not to be uh, interfered with." Where do you think you got all of this courage and perseverance from? Well,
0: that's, that's a really easy With Some of answer. it from
1: gymnastics?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's for sure, yeah. I discipline? Answer. Yeah, discipline. It's actually, that's a very easy question for me to answer because the one thing that my mother did always say in reference to the Holocaust is that if grandma and grandpa could survive that, surely what you're going through is not so bad. And that was when a boy didn't like me back. (laughs) That was when I got a bad test grade. That was also, more specifically, a few years ago I was very ill and I had to go through really hard treatment. It wasn't good. (laughs) And my mother would say, well, it's not the Holocaust. And I said, yeah, it's not even close. So there's no doubt that I'm going to get through this. It's something, it's like a mantra I say to myself all the time. Even when my boys think they're too weak for something, I say, listen, you come from good stock. Like, you'll be all right. And they're like, oh, that's true. To survive a Holocaust, you were people that were physically,
1: emotionally, and spiritually very, very strong. Resilient. Resilient. They had a joyful life in America. Absolutely. Surrounded by family and friends.
0: The way they had to justify surviving and survivor's guilt was that God selected them for a reason and for a purpose. I guess sometimes it maybe takes 70-75 years to see what that purpose is, but my grandmother is realizing that now and she feels really good about what her experiences and her story is now contributing to the world. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: This is hard work though, mm -hmm. right? When you first heard that voice say, you need to write about this, and you said, no, 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 and you felt (laughs) horrified by it. That's no longer there. Uh,
0: it's no longer there. That's not to say that I don't get scared and overwhelmed And what do I, you get scared about? About the enormity of, of this task I feel I've been given. It's a huge responsibility and To I'm, tell it truthfully. To and... tell it to I'm now becoming the face of it and it's it's like who me? You know, I You know, <laughs> <laughs> like how did that happen? So I do get scared, but I never let being frightened or overwhelmed ever deter me. I will always say yes oh. and then figure it out later. Because you feel like it's a challenge? You hmm. ask that. <laughs> Why do I feel that way? If it scares me but I want to do it, that means the reason I'm not doing it is because I'm either afraid of failure or I'm afraid of making a fool out of myself or Everything for the wrong reason, but what's the right reason for doing it is that it's an opportunity it's to do something good, to challenge myself. And I don't want fear to ever be a determining factor or a ruling factor in my life. That's a very conscious decision. Honor those fears. That's number one. I feel that otherwise I repress and then that will always show itself in some other way. And that's negative. I usually vocalize it. I try to discover well, what are the origins of that and does that still serve me today? And a lot I find come from the early childhood of a teacher saying you're nothing this and that. Who is that teacher to determine what I'm doing now in my forties and my life? And I it neutralizes it. I meditate probably a good forty-five minutes every day, not including active meditation. I was taken in at 19 by a Kung Fu master who really taught me the ways of uh, certain Eastern philosophies and exposed to so much that I generally just tailor it to myself and what works for me. So it's probably my own brand of meditation. <laughs> but it's probably a combination of different disciplines. It really happened around the time I had children. The more I express who I really am and, and pursue it, it, it gives me life. I can't imagine ever growing tired of doing what I feel I'm on earth to do.
1: Elise was kind enough to return and tell us about her most amazing recent journey back to Bremen, Germany. So Elise, thank you so much for being back. Yeah, thank you for having me. I know you had an exciting month. Since
0: I went there originally a, a year ago for the premiere of the German translation of my book... It really took off, and it got a lot of attention. And one of the schools that my grandmother actually attended where we spoke um, last year fell in love with the story and wanted to right the wrongs of their past when during the discussion, they didn't even realize that that was the very school that my grandmother was kicked out of in 1938. So I was like
1: What going, grade was she in when she uh, She only left. made
0: it to about seventh grade. She, seventh grade. When she
1: was 13. And how did how did you end up going back to Bremen? Did you seek that out, or did they contact you? No. We never felt comfortable uh, being there because of the history.
0: But then for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, we were. my grandmother was invited back, and we went in her place. And, so somebody yeah. read
1: the book and... Reached out to you? Who was that? Yeah, so
0: then we had people in the government and the historians, and they reached out, and they said it was beautiful. The mayor himself said, this is the responsibility of every citizen in this city to read this book, and we need to get it translated immediately. And for the premiere, they really celebrated it. We did it in the city hall. It was attended by all of the citizens at a huge book signing. They couldn't keep up in stores with it. It was flying off the shelves. It was such a beautiful reception. We mm-hmm. went to speak to at least a thousand students in different schools around the city. And that one school really took it close to their heart. And it was called, in my grandmother's time, the Delmenstrasse School. And now it's called S.E. Neustadt. It's now officially, as of three weeks ago, the Inge Katz Schule after my grandmother and Amazing. after the school has been teaching her story, right? They were teaching Nazi ideology to her in the classrooms, and now their curriculum is the story of this young Jewish girl coming of age in their city. So it just went full circle in a in a moment of of tremendous healing, and it really healed my grandmother at ninety five years old. I think she felt a certain way about her hometown and about the people of that hometown. And when we notified her, because it was on that trip that we found that it was officially named, they were going to unofficially name it, Uh but then the city changed laws in order for it to happen because they believed in it so much. And that was a push from the principal and the students and the community and the journalists to pressure the government that said, we need to change this law so that it can be named after her in her lifetime.
1: Oh my goodness. To right the wrongs of their past.
0: And that was just unbelievably moving gives me a lot of hope for the future and for humanity. Yeah, I had to go back to Germany actually just for research for my next book and when we arrived, they said congratulations, but we passed the law so that but you can attend the naming ceremony. Yeah, and I spoke on her behalf. For the first time, she really thought words and stories of the heart can open hearts and change minds even in her hometown of Germany.
1: That's beautiful. And how did you
0: feel sitting there? It was very overwhelming. Honestly, I didn't even know how to feel. I didn't really know how to process it because it also came from my work. I was the catalyst to bring about this change. And uh-huh. when I went about writing the story, I wanted to inspire. I wanted for people to be hopeful. I wanted a beautiful story out there. It was a dream of mine my whole life. I'm supposed to make the world a better place through my art.
1: And you said that they're picking up
0: it up in Turkish? The the news story of what has happened in Germany and then the school naming. So uh, they asked me to actually write an article for a magazine there. That's yeah, so exciting. Because I'm, I'm actually half Turkish, and Israel just picked it up as well, Mm -hmm. in not only the book and and her life story, but the impact it's having socially, you know, how it's become a movement. Um, And so you're working on a new book, you said? I am, yeah. It's already being spoken about in the press as well, because one thing is what happened in the past, but it also brought about healing and change. But it also brought a response from the other side. They selected my grandmother's father, my great-grandfather, to represent Jewish people as collaborators. With the Nazis, Mm -hmm. and that oftentimes they were even worse than the Gestapo themselves.
1: So you're doing research on this and writing a book about it.
0: Yeah, it's already it's already well in the process. I wanted to get a little more information on it.
1: Well, thank you so much for having so much courage for (laughs) thank you you. for so many people, and thanks for coming back to give us an update. I hope you were as inspired as I was. By Elisa's story of just picking up the pen and starting to write, fighting through daily doubts, and having the grit to work for something that was really important to her. If you found this podcast helpful to you, please subscribe, post ratings and reviews, and share it with everyone you know who wants to stress less and do more. This knowledge is really powerful and science-based. We need to share it with as many people as possible to help with this epidemic of stress and the stress-related diseases that we're seeing today. I know your time is gold, so thank you. And I want to hear from you. Go to mindbodyspace.com, subscribe, and ask me any questions and suggest any topics that you'd like to hear in the future. You'll also find episode show notes and resources on the podcast page. While you're there, check out our online school for courses you can take, like Stress Less and Do More series for students and parents, Get Smarter Than Our Smartphones course, and the full-on SMART course. SMART stands for Stress Management and Resilience Training. It's a research-backed course designed by the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm your certified provider. Until next time, this is Dr. Juna wishing you wellness.